and we examine the prayer of Jesus Christ to his Father. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather for fellowship, to hear the Bible being taught. We thank you for the privilege of living in a free society as of yet, where we can own a Bible, where we can worship you without restriction. Lord, I pray that we might grow and become more like-minded with yourself. And we pray, Lord, this morning that you would challenge us as we hear this conversation, as we eavesdrop once again, as your Son prays to you in this beautiful section of Scripture. I pray that it might mold the way we think, the way we live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I am the youngest of four boys. And having brothers and all males in the family except for my mother was really interesting. It was really survival mode for the kids in my family. Who would get to the dinner table first? That was the big thing at dinner because whoever gets there first digs in first and gets the most food. It really was a competition between us at the dinner table. There was a certain amount of food and uh, boy, we would just jump at it. I remember the times growing up. They were not always easy times. I remember the time that I found a knife and I brought it home and I was goofing off with it like I was something special and my brother was trying to taunt me and trying to see how far I'd go with it and I stuck it in his arm. There was another time where I took a baseball bat and I broke my brother's nose with it. There was the time that he threw me through the front window of the house and I landed out on the front yard. And my mother can recount all of those times because we gave her so many nightmares. It was dangerous growing up in my family. And yet, with all of the rivalries that we had, with all of the problems we faced as kids growing up, it was still home. It was still our family, and we loved our family. And though we might not always get along, we did love each other. There were those times where we really honestly showed affection. And if anybody down the street tried to pick on any of us, the other three would rally around. I mean, I can beat up my brother, but you try to do it and you're in trouble. It was one of those kinds of things. But home was still home. It was a place of refuge. We loved it. It wasn't always easy. We didn't get always get along. All families are like that. And so is God's family. The church is much like a human family. We have our arguments. We have our spats. Uh, There are times we rush to the dinner table. Uh, We want our food first. You come into church and maybe somebody's sitting at your place in the service. You got there a little late and you always sit there, but all of a sudden somebody else is sitting in your chair. And you might walk by them and kind of give them a look like, that's my chair at the dinner table you took. Sometimes we pull out our knives as well, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and we start slicing each other up with it instead of trying to heal wounds. Sometimes the church is very much like a family. But as a family, we're called not to just stay at home, but to go out into the world and make an impact on the world. While in one sense we come here to fellowship, and the Bible says we ought to, and 
Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, but encourage one another daily, and more as you see the day approaching. While fellowship is important, while getting together as a family is important, the follow-up question to that scenario is, what is our relationship to the outside world? Here we are, a bunch of Christians. We gather together at least once a week. We hear the Word of God being taught. We meet each other. We fellowship We're separate, we're different from the world, but then to what extent do we take that? Because Jesus said we're to be salt, we're to be light, we're to go out into the world and make a difference and make an impact. We're part of the family, but does that mean that we're to have a Christian commune that we live in or a Christian neighborhood? Uh, Let's go out and have a Christian housing development. What is our relationship to the world? And this morning as we look at our text... In verses 11 through 19, we're going to look at four truths that tell us our relationship to the world. Let's look at these verses. In verse 11, Jesus continues his prayer to his Father by saying, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Four things that speak of our relationship to the world. First of all, our position. Our position is mentioned in the very first verse that we read, we are in the world. We live here. But we are not of the world. Now let's look at two verses and tie this in. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, Jesus says. But these, that is, the disciples, are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those that you have given me, that they may be one as we are. In verse 14, I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. He keeps using this terminology. They're in it, but they're not of it. That's our position. What exactly does that mean? To be in this world, yet to not be of this world. Now, I think that's an important question. We have to know our position. Because John, one of the disciples of Jesus, wrote a letter and he said, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, that sounds like a radical statement. What do you mean, don't love the world? Does that mean we're not to love creation? We're not to love people? What does he mean, don't love the world? What does Jesus mean when he says, you're in it but not of it? Well, in the Bible, there's three different usages of the term world. First of all, there's the created world, God's creation. 
All that you see around you, the sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains. In Acts chapter 17, it says, God who made the world and everything that is in it. So when the Bible says, don't love the world, is he saying, don't love those trees. Uh, Don't love that sunset. Don't get off on that flower. Certainly not. Because the scripture says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He made it. Jesus spoke of the beauty of creation when he said, Even Solomon in all of his glory isn't arrayed like one of these lilies of the valley. In fact, I think when a person comes to Jesus Christ, that person has a greater appreciation for his environment than someone who doesn't know the Lord because you know the Creator. You look at the sunset and you go, My dad did that. Look at the colors he used. Those mountains, my father put that into place. The beautiful things that I see around me, I know the God who made them. We can appreciate it much more than an unbeliever. Certainly much more than an evolutionist. What are they going to say? Oh, what a beautiful accident that is. (laughs) What a marvelous, fortuitous occurrence of accidental circumstance I see. No, we love the creation that God has given us. That's part of His world. Then there's another use of the term world. It's the world of people. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's the world of men and women. And certainly we're to love that, right? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. God loves people. We're to love God's creation. We're to love the people that God created. But we're never to love the environment, the creation, or other people more than we love God. We're never to let that love take the place of our devotion to the creator of those people or those objects. Listen to what Augustine wrote. To love the world and fail to love God would be like a bride who, being given a ring by her bridegroom, loves the ring more than she loves the bridegroom who gave it. Of course she should love what the bridegroom gave her. But to love the ring and despise him who gave it is to reject the very meaning of the ring as a token of his love. So there's the world of creation, there's the world of men and women. We're to love both of those. But there's a third usage of the term world, and that's what we're getting at. And that is the world system. It's the world in the ethical sense. A world system that hates God. And the Bible uses it that way. It's the Greek term cosmos. We get the term cosmopolitan or cosmic from this term. And it basically means an arrangement, a set order of things. And in the biblical sense, it's the arrangement of thoughts, temperaments, and organization that is against God. The Bible says Satan is the god of this world. The idea is that this world system of the devil, demons, and unbelievers... We're not of that world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Satan is the head. You are in the world of creation. You are in the world of men and women. We are to love creation. We are to love men and women. Yet you are not of the system of the world. You don't take the same values. You don't think the same way as an unbeliever. Your love is different for this world than their love is. You're not led by it. You're not conformed to it. Romans chapter 12. Be not conformed to this world. We're different. We're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So look at it this way. 
This earth is temporary. It's a stopping off point. You're like an alien who visited a foreign planet. You're here for a short time. Your home is an earth. It's heaven. You're in the world. You're surrounded by people who are of it. But you are not of the system. You've been saved out of the world system. You're like a fish out of water. That's your position. For us to fail to recognize that will destroy us. You see, if you don't realize that you are, yes, of the world, you've got flesh, you've got blood, you've got bones, you've got a body that needs to eat, you're on the same planet of the same network, but I'm not of the system. If you fail to realize that, this world will beat you up. You will be pulled in one sense by heaven, and you'll be pulled in other sense by the things of this earth, and you'll be very frustrated because this world has an allurement. So it says, don't be conformed to it. I found a little excerpt from a catechism, a Norwegian catechism, and it pictures God taking human beings and sending them off to this island colony called the earth. They're going to be there for a short period of time. They've got a task to perform. And God says to us, after describing what our life will be like on this earth, He says, The greatest danger is that you may fall in love with this island so that you will not care to return to the home kingdom. Love this island, God says, because it is my possession, but do not love it because it is your home. For it is not your home. Your home is here in the palace with me. So your position, you're in it, but not of it. Also notice what Jesus says as part of your position. You're hated by it. Have you found that to be true? Jesus says here, I have given them your word, notice, and the world has hated them. Part of the territory of being in this world but saved out of the system is that you will incur the hatred and the wrath of this worldly system. You see, people who are of the world who are not Christians, they don't like you. You're an enigma to them. They don't tolerate you very well or very barely. They look at you and you're the real problem in this society, Christian. We don't like you. You're the bigot. You're narrow-minded. You're so intolerant. Therefore, we will not tolerate you. You've become the enemy. We don't like your value system. Now, it's always been that way. Jesus said, when he spoke to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, he said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So get used to it. And some of you have experienced that, right? You get a new job. You meet your colleagues at work, your co-workers. Oh, they like you. You're a great person, great guy, great gal. You buy a new home in the neighborhood. Oh, hey, new people on the block. Let's bring them cookies, popcorn, something. Get to know them. And everything is fine until they find out that you're not one of them. Now, you could be an atheist. You could be a drinker. You could sleep around, and you could even be mildly religious, but when they find out you love Jesus Christ with all of your heart, uh uh-oh, now you're the ultimate party pooper. And you will incur their wrath, and you will incur their slander. You intimidate them because by your life, there's a conviction. They see that you have something. Who do you think you are? You think you're more righteous than I am? You bring a conviction to them. There's a certain amount of being uncomfortable around you. And let's face it, you feel uncomfortable sometimes around them. 
My prediction, it's going to get worse. In this country, it's going to get big time worse. More and more, they will look at you as the real problem of our society. It's that evangelical Christian segment that is the real problem here. I got a fax on my desk. It's from an independent newsletter. And it's supposedly what the Attorney General said after the Waco, Texas incident with the Branch Davidians. The Attorney General was addressing a group on cult awareness and giving the view, probably the view of the government as well as the Attorney General of what the government thinks. This is what a cult is. Quote, a cultist is one who has a strong belief in the Bible and the second coming of Jesus Christ, who frequently attends Bible studies, who has a high level of financial giving to a Christian cause, who homeschools his children, who has accumulated survival foods and has a strong belief in the Second Amendment. Well, I'm a cultist then. And so are most of you. You attend Bible studies. You give to spiritual causes. You have a strong belief in the system of the Bible and so forth. Now, that is your position. You're in this world. You're not of the world, but you're hated by the world. The next great truth that emerges from this, that goes hand in hand with that, is found in verse 15 in Jesus' prayer. He tells us our position, but now he prays for preservation. Your position is you're in it, not of it, hated by it. And then he prays for preservation. Look at verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. The word keep, you could translate it, preserve them. Now, would you please notice how Jesus phrases that request? It's not a prayer of isolationism or escapism. He doesn't say, Father, help these Christians to find a nice cave to hide in where they can be free from all the armies that are coming on our landscape and help them to store up food and get away from all the bad, evil things that the world is doing. He says, I don't pray you take them out. I pray that you keep them through it. Now, every now and then, a new movement sweeps into the church. An isolation movement. Let's escape. Let's get away from it all. They're coming after us. The world is coming after the church. We've got to flee. It happened in the early part of the church, the monastic movement. Let's build monasteries. Let's build hideaways. Let's surround ourselves with godly influences so that we won't become like the world. And they've taken the truth of the Scripture, and with a good motivation, they started out on something that took the truth out of balance eventually. Here's a few examples. One monk in the 5th century, after being buried up to his neck in the ground for months, being spoon-fed decided that the next step to be holy is to suffer the elements of the world, and he lived for 30 years on the top of a pillar near Antioch, exposed to the elements outside for 30 years, so that he would suffer, thereby becoming holy. Another one decided to live out in the field with the cows and eat grass and live off the land, without any of the comforts at all of society. Another one went to the extreme of having the reputation for sanctity, for being holy, because he never changed his clothes, he never bathed after becoming a hermit. Now, is that supposed to make you holy? I'm so holy I haven't had a shower for four years. Wow. 
Oh, excuse me. I mean, I could... Listen, you do that, you'll always be a hermit. Nobody will want to be around you. That was the idea. It was well-meaning. It was well-intentioned. We'll get away from the worldly influences. We'll suffer, thereby earning favor with God. The trouble, it didn't work. It backfired. In fact, Martin Luther and others who were part of that system wrote how people in monasteries, out in the country, apart from the world, still got tempted. Worldliness can still be with you. Why? Because you have a flesh. You have an old nature. And he wrote about some of the monks who, though they were in a monastery, there weren't any brothels, there weren't any women to tempt them. They had a problem with lustful thoughts. And it really almost destroyed them. In fact, it got so bad that from time to time they would flog themselves every time they had a lustful thought or throw themselves into a rose bush, a briar bush, and get cut up by the thorns so that the pain would take their mind off the temptation. Boy, I guess so. Of course, you could always tell what a person had been thinking. Comes home in the afternoon with scratches all over him, flogged. Uh, Brother, you've got a real lust problem, don't you? Uh, Yeah. It didn't work. That's taking a truth of separation, as Paul said, come out from among them and be separate, to a very unbiblical extreme, and it backfired. Okay. Admit it. From time to time, you've had much the same urge to get away from this worldly system. It's tough being around pagans all day long, working with them, the things they say, the things they do. Oh, I wish I just could work around Christians. I want a community. Perhaps we'll have a housing development up in the mountains. We'll put a big wall around it. And only Christians can live there. We'll have Christian stores and Christian policemen. Yeah, there'll be a place like that. It's called heaven. That's what heaven will be like, just believers. But until then, Jesus intended that Christians live among the world, among blasphemous mouths, partiers, people who don't love God, so that you can rescue them out. And that's what we're going to find here in verse 18. Now, as we go on, you should know that in church history, in fact, at the time of Jesus Christ, there was a group of people who decided to be that separate. In fact, their name means the separated ones. We call them Pharisees. They were so against worldly cooties that they became separate. They wouldn't touch anything that was Gentile. They would wear certain robes and not let the robes touch other people who they thought were worldly. And they were the ones that complained because Jesus Christ was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's your master doing in that house with Matthew? He collects taxes. He's worldly. He shouldn't be seen in that place. Oh, he should be seen in that place. He's going to rescue some of those tax collectors out of the system, out of the worldly system, and they're going to be following him. Notice Jesus says, keep them from the evil one. Don't take them out. Keep them. Preserve them. Tereo is the Greek word. Surround them and protect them from the influence. Protect them from the influence. You see, Christian, your life is sort of like a boat. You're floating on the sea called the world. The waves beat against you, sometimes very ferociously. But there's not a problem as long as that boat floats. Even if the waves get rough. Just just keep the world out there. I'm floating on the world. I'm not taking on water. 
But when the world gets inside of you and you start taking on its value system, it's like a boat taking on water begins to sink. It's okay for the church to be in the world. That's where they ought to be. The problem is when the world gets in the church and we start following their values, their philosophies, then we start sinking. It's called compromise. In church history, I believe Satan has always had two approaches. Number one, take the church out of the world. He tried that for the first few hundred years through persecution. Kill them off. Incite the Roman governments to not tolerate Christians. Kill them. They tried that. didn't work. The church grew. But the second attack worked. Put the world inside the church. Corrupt them from the inside. Have the Christians take on worldly value systems so you can't tell the difference between the world and the church. That worked. And it has worked very effectively since. You've read, no doubt, the book of Revelation, the first few chapters. Jesus Christ writes seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. These were local assemblies. But they also represent periods of church history that unfolded historically. The first letter was to the church of Ephesus. Jesus says, I know your works. I know your labor. You can't withstand those who are false. That's the apostolic church. The second letter is to the church of Smyrna, who was persecuted by the Roman government. Jesus writes and he says, I know your works and I know your tribulation. The third letter was to the church that had taken on worldly values. It was the church at Pergamos. And after the great persecutions of the Roman Empire, it seemed like the world and the church got married and became very, very close. And so Jesus writes, and he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. All right, let's review. Our position, you're in the world, not of it. You're hated by the world. Jesus prays for then our preservation that you wouldn't be taken out of the world, but that you would be kept in the midst of it. The question would arise, how does that work? Well, that's the third great truth found in this text, and that is preparation. For us to survive, we need to be prepared. Let's look at verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word... Is true. Now that's a very important word, sanctify. I know it sounds like a hundred dollar word, it sounds very religious. The word sanctify or saint, as the Bible would sometimes translate it, simply means to be set apart. God picked you out of the world, He set you apart, you now belong to Him, you are sanctified, you're consecrated to do His work for His purpose. Let me give you a few examples of what sanctification means. Husbands, you are sanctified to your wives. You are to give yourself physically to no one but that woman. You have no right to flirt, to hold hands, to kiss any other woman. You are sanctified to your wife. Wives, you're sanctified to your husbands in that physical sense. If you work for a company, you're sanctified to that company. They pay you. The hours that you work, you've got to work for them. You can't have another job on the side and collect money from the company for it. That's unethical. You are sanctified to that company. If you're a soldier, you're sanctified to your country. You're a soldier, which means you can't be a soldier plus an entrepreneur, plus this and plus that. You've got to concentrate on battle activity, being a soldier. And you're a soldier separated to one country. 
If you start sticking up for your country and another country, you're a traitor. They'll kill you for that or they'll banish you. You can't sell secrets from one country to the next. You are sanctified in the same sense. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's your boss. He's your bridegroom. You've been bought with the price. You belong to Him. Now you are set apart solely for His purpose. What is the means? How are we set apart? How are we prepared while we live in this world? Notice what it says in verse 17. Sanctify them, set them apart, and here's the great tool, the Word of God. Sanctify them with your truth. Your Word is truth. Father, what these people need is to be constantly influenced by your Word, the Word of truth. I was looking over uh, verse 17 this week, and as I read it over and over again, I thought, you know, you couldn't find probably a more politically incorrect prayer than verse 17. First of all, the word truth is used. Sanctify them by your truth. Now, in today's society, truth is relative. There are no absolutes. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of saying, this is truth. And somebody will respond, well, that might be truth for you, friend, but it's not truth for me. Everybody discovers their own truth. There's no universal right and wrong, no grid for absolutes. It's relative to who you are and your own experiences. You have no right to tell me what is the truth. I find that out for myself. It's all relative. It's all existential. I was taught that in college. Some of you were taught that. That you've got a value system of right and wrong, and you can't force that on anybody else. You know, I've often wondered, what would happen if, as your professor said, there's no universal basis for right and wrong, no absolute truth, you're free to do sort of what you want and discover your own reality. If you were to walk up in the middle of his class, sit on his desk, throw the papers around, get into his briefcase, and then just watch what happens. What are you doing? Doing what's right for me. (laughs) But that's wrong. Wrong for who? It might be wrong for you, but it's acceptable for me. But you're invading my personal rights. Well, you just invaded my personal rights telling me I can't do it. I'm a victim here. (laughs) I'm only doing what you've taught me. You have no right to flunk me. I'm simply following you as the philosophy teacher of my class. We have no universal base or consensus of right and wrong. But you see, here's the point. Your word is truth. Pilate asked, what is truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The word of God, he said here, is the truth. There's no sliding scale of truth. There are absolutes. I know our society doesn't hold to them, but there are. It's all over the Bible. That's why we have the word of God, so we know as that line of demarcation what is true and what is false. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Folks, all the equipment you need to float in that boat and not be drowned by the worldly system, to be dedicated to God, all of the equipment you need is right here. It's found in the Scriptures. Now, if that's the truth, if the Bible, the Word of God, gives you all of the equipment you need to make a stand and not fall to not become like the world, but to stand while you're in it. Doesn't it make sense that we need a lifeline to this book, like daily? 
We need to be constantly feeding from it daily. Do you eat physically once a week? If you do, you're anorexic. Are you spiritually anorexic? Yeah, I just read it, but I'll just wait and I'll hear what he has to say about it and and that'll be my meal. Seven days without reading the Bible makes one weak. W-E-A-K. You'll become weakened without a daily diet of the Word of God. We need it. And we need to feed on it on a daily basis. And I would hope, my prayer is, is that these Sunday meetings, these Sunday night meetings, these Thursday night meetings are appetizers. That you learn to cook your own food. You learn to read the Bible and get God's truth out of it for yourself as well as the corporate feedings. Your word, Jesus said, is the truth. That's the preparation. Our position in the world, not of it. Preservation, keep them from the influence. Don't take them out of the world. Keep them right there, but guard them. The preparation, the word of God. Finally, and I would say this is really the graduation part of it, is verse 18. The fourth great truth that we find here in our relationship to the world is what I call permeation. Permeation. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Do you get that? The goal of Bible study, of fellowship, of these kind of meetings is not education. It's to infiltrate the world, to rescue people out of it. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Think about that. You are the salt of the earth. Now, I know it's fun being here in the salt shaker, but the real effect is when we get emptied out into the world, right? It's great to be around other pieces of salt. Oh, it's great. It's easy to be a Christian around Christians. But the effect is when the salt is poured out into the world. That's how you become the salt of the earth. And you're the light of the world. The best place for light is not under a bushel, Jesus said, but you set it up on a lampstand that it gives light to everybody in the house. It's great to let our light shine as we come for fellowship. They shine so bright, all these little candles together in fellowship and in song and in the word and hugging and encouraging. But then our light needs to be out on the lampstand because there's people walking in darkness who need to know the way out. And that comes by letting our light shine. So we're on a mission from God. This is a stopover point. We're going to another kingdom. We don't need to love this kingdom completely lest we lose our love for the future kingdom. Jesus said, Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. What's your reaction to that? What would you do if you were following Jesus? You're having a great time. He's teaching you things and he says, Now I'm going to send you like a sheep out into that pack of wolves. Well, thanks a lot. This is what I get for following you. You're going to send me out in the midst of wolves. Why? Do you want me gobbled? No. I want some of those wolves to become sheep like you. That's why I'm sending you out there. You see the importance here? We need exposure to the Word as well as exposure to the world. You take any part of that equation away and you will have an imbalanced Christian life. If you are exposed to the world and not exposed to the Word, you become like them. Ineffective. You become like a worldly person. If you are exposed to the Word only, but you're not exposed to the world, you'll become fat and sassy. You'll become all receiving and no giving. Oh, give me more. Bless me more. This is great. But if you don't make contact with the world, you have nothing to give out. You don't have an outlet. 
You become very ingrown. So you need exposure to the Word, but you need exposure also to the world. We're saved to be set apart to serve, to go out. There was a little boy. He was in a church, and he was looking up at a stained glass window, and he says, I get it, Daddy. Saints are people that have light shine through them. That's very profound, don't you think? He was thinking in terms of a stained glass window and the light comes through into the church. But a saint is somebody who has light shine through them. God's people are those who have the light not just shine on them, but through them, and it affects others, and people look at our lives that way. The Word needs to get out to the world. We're in it, we're not of it. They hate us, that's part of the territory. Jesus said it would happen because we don't share their value system. The solution is not to be taken out of it, but to be kept through it. How do we do it? By the Word of God. A constant line to the truth. And then we graduate by going out into the world and spreading who we are and what God has done around. I want to conclude with one sentence from a news article. A small Midwestern weekly newspaper ran a story after a storm hit their area. Quote, We are pleased to announce that the cyclone which blew away the church last Friday did no real damage to the town. That's kind of frightening, isn't it? Yeah, the church got blown away, got destroyed. Didn't really hurt the town. Oh, there's the danger. When the church becomes that irrelevant to society, that when you get rid of it, does no damage to the town. We're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. The Word needs to get out there, but the Word needs to be in us first. Let's pray. Lord, how grateful we are for this prayer of Jesus Christ. And in this prayer, He shows us our relationship to this world. That we're to love Your creation. We're to love the people that are in it. But because they are of the system and we are not, there is going to be that animosity towards us. Lord, I pray that our attitude would not be an isolationist attitude, but an infiltration attitude. That we would be exposed to truth and then get out there and let our light so shine among men that people would see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Father, we finally pray for those who might be here this morning. Though they're in the church building, they're really not of the church. They're still of the world. Their hearts are burdened. They want to know what forgiveness is all about. Father, we pray that those who have come, that you've touched their hearts, you've selected them, you've used this time to choose them out of the world, I pray that they now would just simply respond to you and turn their lives over to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 